Welcome back to Schoolhouse Talk. Today's guest is Dr. Jose Hugo Vargas, a social psychologist from Cal State Northridge. Dr. Vargas will be discussing his research, and in our discussion, we'll seek to try to demystify critical race theory. Dr. Vargas will also be our initial keynote for our conference this year um, on June 28th. So if you enjoy what you hear today, hopefully you can join us then. And a quick note, James Miles, a fresh professor, will be joining us about 15 minutes in. We're really excited to talk to Dr. Vargas about his work, what inspires him, um, kind of understand his origin story, what led him to his research, and just uh, welcome, Dr. Vargas. Uh, well, thank you. You know, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, after reading your um, your article, which was in higher ed, it was quite an, it was such an interesting story um, or that, you know, the way you wrote it, it was telling the story of, of mentorships and, and um, applying critical race theory and kind of having us kind of reassess the role of mentors um, and the responsibility of mentors as well within that role. Um, and what I love about like your writing and even what you're working on now, like your, your follow-up article that we discussed is kind of like the hero's journey. And, mm -hmm. and I, I love that you're leaning into, you're a researcher, but you're leaning to the humanities, right? You're, you're, you're yes. a, a quantified field, right? With kind of within the quantified field of psychology. Um, but, and of course I always believe mixed methods is the best approach. Um, I do too. I and agree. I just, I just really would like to hear more about your origin story, like your background of like why you're leaning on to like the humanities and why it's important to have these narratives within research. Uh, oh wow, that, it, it, that's a very excellent question, and there are, I think there are a few ways I can answer it. There's the academic answer I can give, and but I think I'll start off with maybe more of a, the personal answer with like. Um, you know what what has led me down this you know path and into this area of research um i would have to say um it has to do a lot with my upbringing um i i attribute a lot of my you know interests in issues of social justice you know to my parents and my sister um my parents and my sister they were both uh they were all born in el salvador mm. And in the 80s, as the Civil War started to get really intense, um, my parents decided to make the, the very difficult decision of leaving everything they, they grew up with, every, everyone they'd known and loved in, you know, in search of safer lands. Mm -hmm. And the United States was that opportunity for, for my parents. My, my father came first and you know, was able to, you know, get some jobs, you know, um, set things up a little bit. And then a few months later was able to get my, my mother and my sister over. And my mother was six months pregnant with me. Wow. <laughs> so uh, there's this kind of like, uh, you know, made in, uh, made in El Salvador, but born in the U.S. Okay. kind of thing, you know. Uh, and so growing up with those stories, um, you know, I think stories, uh, they're, they're very, very powerful and very revealing of the human condition, sociologically, psychologically. And, and as a social psychologist, I'm somewhere there in an awesome middle, I think. 
But, you know, listening to their stories of life before the Civil War as, as things started to get pretty bad and then that shift to complete uh, chaos and, you know, having been born in the U.S. in Santa Monica, California, <laughs> very nice place, right? Um, you know, I recognize the, the, you know, privileges that I have in, you know, by simply being born in this country um, and the opportunities that have been open, you know, because of these very difficult decisions my, my parents made. Um, I grew up in Southern California uh, most of my life. I only moved out of the Valley, San Fernando Valley specifically, um, to um, do my PhD, you know, program at the University of Nevada, Reno. But I've always wanted to get back to L.A. And so I think that's where, you know, kind of bringing it back to, you know, why am I doing this research? I have had some of the best educators in my life. Right. And I know the, you know, almost make or break kind of, you know, situations students may find themselves in if they don't have that educator or mentor in their life. Who is a mentor that you can point to? Um, is there a mentor um, from your experience that has kind of helped guide you to where you are? And what, what, what were the, you know, and if there is a mentor, what were the qualities that have helped inspire you to get to where, mm -hmm. where you are? Uh, I've had, I think, several mentors, you know, like, and they each played different roles. I include my family again as, as you know, playing this, you know, mentor, educator type function. Um, for whatever reason, given the upbringing, I was able to beat a lot of the stats, you know, like um, um, I was looking into some recent um, statistics from the National Center uh, for Education. And, you know, I'm the first one in my family to go to college. So as a first generation student, you know, they, you know, on average, 13% get associate's degrees, you know, a few more get bachelors, but around 20%, but only 3% get master's degrees or higher. And those numbers become even lower once you bring in race, right. ethnicity, and the yeah. fact that I am a, a Latino um, and uh, the son of, of immigrants. Right. And so there's that, that, you know, barrier that for whatever reason, again, I, I, I beat the stats. So there's something about my family. I would also say that I've had some amazing mentors in very important parts in my education. In, in middle school, um, well, let me back up a little bit. When I was in elementary school, I was doing well. And then in middle school, I was put in a magnet program that was predominantly white. Mm -hmm. And I immediately felt like I just don't belong here. Like there's, and I can't put my, you know, my, my, finger on it, but there was just something different and, and, and my grades really slipped, but I had this music teacher and, and um, I, I play bass. I still play a little bit, but not, not like professionally, right. <laughs> but um, she, you know, gave me that attention I needed and also kind of, you know, told me you need to focus on school, you know, even if, you know, you, you know, you may not find it interesting or uh, there may be like some other like issues you're having in class that this is important. This is an investment you're making, you know, for the rest of your life. And she made that really clear. And then once I hit high school, I kind of took that to heart and I started taking my school seriously. 
And I, I met another music teacher there. Same function for about, you know, three, almost four years. And then my senior year in high school, there was a professor, Dr. Jeff McAuliffe, the first psychology professor we had. And that put me on the path to social science. I thought I was going to either do music or major in English. <laughs> but, like, he basically, I, during one of the parent-teacher conferences, told my parents, you know, like, he, he, referring to me, could be anything he wants to, as long as he puts in the effort. And, and that, that stuck with me. Right. Then I hit college, and then there's this moment where I'm kind of floating around, and then I meet the mentors that have been my mentors to this day. You know, uh, I include uh, uh, Dr. Kerry Sattermo, who's the second author in right. the uh, article that you alluded to earlier. Um, she actually uh, set up a um, research training program when I was an undergrad in 2004. She had set it up earlier called Career Opportunities in Research Core, mm -hmm. which is an NIMH funded program designed to, you know, uh, train and and move underrepresented persons into these advanced fields, and so as a as a core scholar, I was able to get some uh, of her mentorship. I also was given a mentor, uh, Dr. McAuliffe, who, who also put me on the path to social psychology. Um, and, and in fact, it was Dr. McAuliffe who told me about core and convinced me to delay my graduation, two years. I was ready to graduate, but I had no preparation for graduate school. I thought you were just gonna apply and you would just get accepted as if you're applying to an undergraduate program and it's totally not the case. That's when I started to realize the importance of mentorship and that hidden curriculum, that there are these things that, especially as a first generation student, I had no awareness of, but that, you know, were consequential to my life goals. Get provocative and discuss critical race theory. Um, what I've observed in a lot of the media right now is a collective cognitive dissonance about critical race theory. Um, and I'm really wondering, because you, you lean on critical race theory in, in your research, um, and I feel that you're reading your research and your perspective and, and others' research who really like have delved into it. And critical race theory has been around for decades. Um, it didn't just show up. Um, but of course, it's in the media all over the place right now. And I feel like the general public really is being misinformed about what critical race theory is. And so I'm curious if from a social psychologist perspective, um, what what tell us a little more about your perspective on critical race theory and and why why are you using it to inform your research well uh, i'll caution the listeners that whenever i uh, make such uh, an assessment right uh, i'm i'm using it based on my professional opinion right i don't have data for this i, I tend to prefer to speak from data but you know why why is this happening in in, in the mainstream media right now i mean it the obvious reason is the the recent anti-racist uprisings uh, that I think, you know, would probably not have happened if it wasn't for lockdown, if it wasn't for the fact that all of us were were forced out of our routine, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and at one point, you know, could not 
avoid seeing a man get murdered in front of your eyes, getting mm-hmm. tortured slowly and, and, and then seeing the life expire. Um, that's a trauma, you know, so there's some kind of collective trauma going on as well. But then the issue is how, how do you deal with that trauma? And for some people, it is easier to deny the trauma or, or to rationalize it, to, to minimize it, to, to reframe it somehow in, in a way that makes sense to already pre-existing uh, belief systems um, or, or values. Um, but I, you are absolutely right, Chris. Right now, what's happening with critical race theory is that it is completely being, uh, you know, you know, missed. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm <laughs> what word I'm trying to find right now. It's just uh, there's a lot of misinformation, right, from all angles. Most of these folks, you're right, have not probably even opened a textbook uh, or even read an article that says critical race theory. Right. And um, I feel pretty confident that our last president probably never said critical race and theory consecutively ever in his life until racists like Stephen Miller probably put that little gem in his mind. Right. 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 Um, and so I think we need to look at this from, you know, that, that kind of like political spectrum, both the left and the right are, attacking critical race theory. And I think that that only illustrates how pervasive and subtle modern racism actually is. But but you have your types that you would expect to attack critical race theory. Uh, you know, Tucker Carlson on, on, on faux news right. uh, being, I think, a, a great example. But then you have people that are on the so-called left that that you hear more or less the same kind of rhetoric. Uh, I'm also going to throw Bill Maher under the bus, oh, yeah. you know, oh, uh, yeah. a man who claims to be super liberal, but in many ways is exactly what critical race theorists are talking about. Like yeah. when you when you're economically well off. And you're not you have a right. different perspective on right. the world, right? right? And that intersects with race, right. and it intersects right. with all these other yeah. isms, right? But there's a tendency to want to separate everything. Uh, Tucker Car- Carlson, his myth that he pushes is that critical race theory is anti-white, that is anti-American, right. that is not patriotic. Again, all the right-wing white supremacists at this point, not even dog whistles, right. you know, they're just straight up so, bullhorns. So t- can you define it for us? Like some of our listeners who, um, like, can, is there post, are you able to like, give us a quick summary of, of what is critical race theory or a core content? Oh yes. Or- critical race theory. There's not one definition. Right. So, so what are some ways to think about it? Well, first off, it's not a theory in the scientific sense. So it, it's already, it, it's, it's a misnomer. Right. So so critical race theorists uh, are already kind of like <laughs> backing themselves up a little bit by by not being very clear in the terminology. And, and you know, the conversations that we've had in the last few months that words matter, language matters. Right. So critical race theory is not a scientific theory that can be tested through empirical data. It's a it's a perspective. It's a it's a an epistemology. It is a way of trying to understand what qualifies as valid knowledge and what doesn't qualify as valid knowledge. And for a long time, we've lived in a society where denying racism is considered valid knowledge. And now that we're saying no, 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 that is not the case. You're seeing the resistance again. 
from the right and from the left, because everyone, including us, have been raised in this structurally racist society. We are maybe not directly responsible for certain historical events, but we are products of them nevertheless. And then we ripple things out <laughs> from our present into the future. Right. We're still connected, but also I, I would say that critical race theory has multiple definitions. It, it started off in the critical legal studies tradition. So this actually began in law um, with the work of Derek Bell um, out of Harvard. And many students wanted to basically step up the current critical legal studies perspective. So critical legal studies would actually challenge current notions of the law. Um, but it didn't take a racial lens necessarily. And then students wanted that lens incorporated. And so eventually critical legal studies would become critical race theory, um, especially with the work of Kimberly Cranshaw and the, the first conferences that were set up around this, the name eventually caught on. In fact, when the, the first conference that was held on critical race theory, that's really why we call it critical race theory, it was the name given to it at the time, <laughs> right? So there's this there's this human history that we just don't talk about too, right? These are right. people creating right. these, these ideas and, right. and pushing these ideas forward. And eventually, you know, beginning I would say like in, in the late 80s, 90s, you start to have educators being exposed to critical race theory um, because there were lawyers making connections between law and the educational system. I'm, I'm thinking uh, of uh, Cheryl Harris in particular, in particular, as well as Kim Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, now, several decades later, uh, critical race theory is a perspective in many areas of the social sciences, uh, but it's still not a mainstream perspective. It is still very misunderstood. And I think in, in the academic realm, especially among scientists, you know, most of us are so wedded to positivism, you know, the experimental yeah. method. Yeah. Uh, we don't see the value, as we were talking about earlier, about things coming out of the humanities um, and fields outside of science. And I find that a little bit ironic, at least for social scientists, because everything that humans do is technically data <laughs> for, for a social scientist. And to deny that is... I, again, I've always found that a little awkward. Um, I'm trying to put the social back in social psychology. <laughs> That's great. Dr. Vargas, pleasure to, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's nice James. to meet you, James. Yeah. So, you know, I was reading something today uh, that l correlated critical race theory with eugenics because the possibility of uh, analyzing someone's race and then telling them, uh, how they should or only could behave based on their identity. What is, and this is someone that's against critical race theory in schools. What is, what, how do you, what would you say to that? <laughs> that. I, well, I always start off with, you know, race is not a real thing. It is a social construct, <laughs> right? Now, don't get me wrong. Social constructs yeah. have been Important consequences uh, in, in sociology. There's something referred to as, as the Thomas theorem. Like I, I, I don't know the quote exactly, but it's more or less, you know, that which we believe to be real, regardless of its reality, becomes true in its consequences. Race is a a social construct. There's no biological evidence for it. It, it, it is something that technically is only a few centuries old. Uh, if you if you look at you know the the entire history of, of 
you know, the human species, it's only been in the last few centuries that we've demarcated ourselves, that we've categorized ourselves based off of the this this social construct of race, which in many ways began again in the law as a way to give advantage to wealthy whites, at least in the United States, uh, at the expense of all other groups. Um, eventually, though, you would you'll you you know you would get scientists that would want to prove something that was technically thought up by a bunch of legal heads, <laughs> right? But now they're trying to use the scientific methods in order to show evidence of this thing called race. But of course, the, the, the motivation is not just to show, oh, look, I proved that humans have, you know, they belong to different categories. The purpose of categorization has that ulterior motive, in which is to create a hierarchy. Uh, so supremacy and, and uh, is is a natural ingredient of, of any hierarchy, ultimately. Um, race in the United States is has been the defining hierarchy that impacts all other hierarchies based off of gender, class, uh, sexual orientation, religion. Um, it, it's no secret that in the United States, you know, older, white, straight, wealthy Christian males are at that top of, of this racial hierarchy. Um, and so, you know, whenever I hear anyone trying to talk about, you know, you know, I can find evidence of race, I'm already, you know, suspect. Like my spidey senses are already like flaring. Like there's, <laughs> there's no, 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 no. You're, you're already, you're already coming from a, a, a foundation that has no basis in facts. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in facts. Right. Yeah. That. That's. I. I I'm. I'm hearing the same thing, and I'm glad you said that, uh, because oftentimes it's well because if racism a thing, why are we talking about it, right? If older, white, wealthier men control this country, that's just the way it is. Everyone has the equal opportunity to do so. You just have to work hard, right? That's the the pull yourself by, by your bootstraps, which uh-huh. is physically and literally impossible to do. It's still <laughs> still the, the method of, of what we tell the young people. Why pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Uh, pick something that we can actually do. Uh, but could could and I, I'm speaking as as like a conservative right now. Could critical race theory then lead to the same kind of hierarchy and structure, putting you and I on top and Chris on the bottom? Uh, I, I you know what I, I <laughs> well practically speaking I doubt. <laughs> because practically speaking, that's the antithesis of what critical race theory is all about in its value system, in its history, in in the individuals involved, and, and the way that it keeps getting developed. Um, you know, theoretically speaking, uh, critical race theory is a perspective, and any perspective can be used for good or evil, yes. so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Um I, but I would venture to say that as soon as CRT starts to go in that direction, it doesn't really qualify as CRT anymore. Right. It, it, it's now mutated yeah. to something else. Right. So no, I mean, CRT is intentionally about trying to break down hierarchy. And I think that's the scary part for most people. Everyone is yes. used to hierarchy. And, and without hierarchy, how are we going to arrange ourselves in this society? Well, and, and we're so locked into this idea of, people on top, people on the bottom, and that ha- you know that being normal, 
um, that we don't question that they're, you know, that that's a social construct <laughs> and that we can construct <laughs> a different world. We can create the world that we actually want. It's, it's sometimes it's a matter of, of, of the will and, and it's not there for, for multiple reasons, you know, fear, uh, loss of power. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people like it this way. I, 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 uh, think, I think you're raising the point past couple of decades kind of negating the humanities as much in the research and mm -hmm. moving towards more of a quantified approach and within that quantified approach you start creating these dichotomies and if you are considering that when applying critical race theory that there's a lot of gray within it it is not dichotomous mm -hmm. it is not it is not, and so I, I'm really... no, that's, a, that's an excellent point, Chris, and I'm going to throw some social psychology at you right now. Uh, and, and I think what you're referring to is this is this concept of of need for closure. Right. Uh, need for closure is, is you know you can think of it in the in the you know human sense that people don't like uncertainty and that they want answers. They don't like to be left hanging, right? So, so you, you can think of it in, in a in almost a humorous context. You know that person that doesn't like a cliffhanger or, or a to be continued. You know we all know those kinds of people. My aunt is one of those. Like I hate that. I just want to know that, <laughs> right? And so you know there's this thing of called need for closure, and, and it's it's almost like a personality trait. People have different levels of tolerance for for closure, and some people are okay with things being open-ended and, and unfinished, and other people can't stand that and, and have to have an answer. Right. Um, so, you you know, not only are there these social pressures, you know, that, you know, that it's hard to have these conversations, there aren't spaces to have these conversations, but then there's the psychological reality that we are individuals, we are emotive, we, we, we feel ourselves throughout this world in order to make sense out of it. Um, and, you know, for, for a critical race theorist, the complexity uh, of what we're talking about is tolerable. For someone with high need for closure, it's, it's maybe too much to take. Yeah, I mean, the opening of every uh, circle or meeting, especially in a progressive space, is accept non-closure, right? <laughs> right? You, 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 that's part of the, the courageous conversations. You know, trust, respect, accept non-closure, right? Mm -hmm. Appreciate discomfort. So what you're saying really hits home to me, uh, especially as it relates to folks saying, if we ask for equity, we can't have equity. We're a capitalist society. So we're, people are adjoining race with capitalism. And because we're such a strong capitalist society, you know, we had the Cold War for, for 50 years that... As soon as you equate anything outside of anti-capitalism, mm -hmm. it's anti-American. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Which, which to Donald Trump's point, is, you know, anti-racism is anti-American, right? <laughs> we should be embracing racism. We should embrace, right, hierarchy well, and structure. Yeah. It's, it, again, it's no secret that capitalism and racism came about at the same time. They are part and parcel of the same thing. They, I, they are a, a, in, in this country... Given our history, racism and capitalism is a unified social structure. It is intentionally built into our system. It is a purposeful way of organizing our society. That's all a social structure is. How do we organize ourselves in the society? 
and you can organize yourselves in many, many, many ways. We've chosen this hierarchical model, but there are different hierarchies throughout the world. Not all of them have this concept of race. Race is an, an, an intentional tool to separate, uh, in essence, the, the poor who are of different colors from the wealthy who tend to be right. white. And that continues to this day, and the denials you know, around that issue serve the purpose of keeping this system in place. It is a system justification. And sadly, again, here's some more social psychology for you. Uh, John Jose, who, who talked about system justification theory, you know, has a lot of data that shows that people at the bottom of the hierarchy end up accepting their own oppression. They, they end up rationalizing the system they live in. So, so like, you know, you know, to, to calm the fears of, of right-wingers, this isn't just their fault, <laughs> right? Everyone <laughs> is involved in this, in this horror called structural racism, right? To different degrees and levels. Um, and, you know, we come up with many ways to, to kind of like justify the way that this, this system operates at the expense of alternatives. And when you do present these alternatives, yes, they're going to be thought of as anti-American because, you know, if, if you do take the extreme view, and I kind of do, um, if capitalism and racism is a built-in intentional social structure of the U.S., then America is racist, unlike what Bill, uh, unlike what Biden and Harris, two people on the left, yes. said yes. not too long ago. <laughs> Right. You can't have it both ways, folks. So, so George Floyd, this happened, but it's not because of systemic racism. But there is systemic racism because it happened to George Floyd. Uh, no, no, you, it, 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 America is, as it's currently structured, racist. Does that mean that people are evil who live in it? No. It's just that the way the system works. We can change that, though. Right. Because we, are, we can build a more perfect union. It's not a perfect union, right? It's a more perfect union. The idea is that we're always, always, always building on the next. And, and <laughs> right. critical race theorists and, and critical social... And that's another thing. I, I, I do approach my work from an ecosystemic perspective. You know, it, it, it's, it's not just about the individual. And it's also not just about the social structures. It's about those things and everything in between and everything outside of it and all of their interactions. Um, and yes, that's complex. It's complicated. It's open-ended. You kind of have to have that tolerance for this ambiguity um, to do this kind of work. You know what? It, 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 but another thought that just kind of came into my head a minute, part of it, a part of the ambiguity could simply be that we are on this precipice, perhaps, of going from one way of thinking into a new way of thinking. And, and those transitions aren't smooth. Right. You know, like right. people have to learn a new framework, a, right. a, a new way of, of, of seeing themselves connected to other people and to, into the systems that they live in, their communities, uh, the rules that, that they're bound by, the norms that they take for granted. Um, all the things that we've been taking for granted, we're not able to do that right now. And so as a result, I think you're, getting, you're seeing the resistance. Uh, right. But I, and I think this is what Chris kind of alluded to earlier. We're poking the bear. It means we're doing something right. Exactly. You know, I, 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 um, you said it's we're going from one framework to another framework, and that takes time to adjust. Would that be similar to, 
You know, if in 1985 they handed us an iPhone and said, great, here's your new phone, we would have not been able to be like, wait, I'm used to calling people on the phone. I don't know what a web is. How do I adjust to this? I could apply that in my real life right now. And my students, for the most part, in their 20s, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I hear about TikTok and Twitch and, and, and Hulu, and, and I'm not sure. I don't think those are even the same kinds of services, but they're just they're not. weird acronyms <laughs> and, or names. Um, it, technology moves fast, so we, yes. we would definitely see those those hesitancies maybe in, in that situation. But even then, eventually people caught on. Yep. You know, I, I yes, I, I I think that they're that's I think a good analogy. You know, mm-hmm. like um, frameworks serve a function for us. They simplify our lives. They allow us to be on autopilot because the human brain would overload if it had to think about executing every single thing that we do on a daily basis. Just having this conversation, thousands, if not tens of thousands of processes are are operating simultaneously that I cannot give cognitive attention to or else I wouldn't be able to function. Uh, I mean, think about driving a car. You know, you don't think about where your hands are and how you're moving your feet and, you know, where the roads are turning, you know, you, you, at, at some point you're able to, through habit, operate at some level, you know, unconsciously or, or on autopilot. Right. Right. Um, that's what frameworks do. You know, like if you, you know, if you go to a restaurant, you know what to expect. There's, you know, if it's a fancy restaurant, there's probably going to be a host or hostess if, you know, They'll direct you to a table. You'll be given a menu. You'll have someone wait on you, right? Um, if you went into a restaurant and all of a sudden, like, you know, a wrestling match broke out, you would be like, <laughs> something's wrong here. Right. <laughs> and I don't know what to do. How do I behave? <laughs> what I do, right? And so, you know, frameworks serve that that heuristic function. Mm-hmm. Racism has become a heuristic function for some folks. Colorblindness has become a heuristic function for some folks. And we are asking them to come, you know, and use a new framework. It's it's gonna, it's, again, it's not gonna be a smooth transition. Yeah. Thinking of the transitions that we're going through right now as a nation, um, just a transition of schools right now, like many are trying to be back in person. Um, we're trying to open up Hopefully people are getting vaccinated so that we can reopen. Um, what what advice do you have, like as a social psychologist for, for our listeners to think about, you know, uh, many educators are listening. And so um, advice they can give to the parents, you know, that of the children they serve, um, of course, their own children, um, their own community. Um, I think James, like, put it earlier, um, you know, people be, are sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> I completely mm-hmm. agree. So yeah. just... Considering you know this 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 uh, you know not just one thing going on this collective experience that works that we have right now, what advice do you have for people's psychological well being? The advice that I can give is maybe it's not clinical advice, but it's ecosystemic advice. Um, I I would argue, um, and I actually haven't made this argument originally. I'm I'm not that brilliant. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Gabor Mate, he's a, a physician uh, working out of Canada, and he talks about how illness 
is ultimately traceable to stress. And that stress is partly, if not mainly due to the intentional alienating social structures of our society, of a capitalist society. Uh, our society wants us to be depressed. Our society wants us to feel disconnected because if we are connected to each other, we can actually see our humanity. We live in a, again, in a society that capitalism and racism are intentionally built. So my relationship with you is not so much based on humanity and dignity. It's often based off of a monetary exchange. What can you do for me? And what can I get out of you? You know, this, this has a psychological consequence, many psychological consequences. And, and Gabor Mate argues that, you know, the alienating structures, they, they alienate you from your work, right? That's the typical understanding of, of Karl Marx's idea of, of theory of alienation, right? People, people like the, the stereotype of the, the assembly line worker, right? They, they never see the full product made. Right. They only right. do a little part. They're, they're a cog in a larger machine, right? But, but Gabor Mate and Karl Marx uh, originally said that, you know, you're also alien. Other aspects of alienation is not just from your labor. You also become alienated from other people. Um, again, you, you start to see each other as monetary in your relationships as opposed to as human beings. You also become alienated from your environment. So you don't mind trashing it, you know, and you become alienated from your authentic self. When you're asked to go do work for some boss who's not giving you dignity, and you, that's how you spend your life activity, as Marx would say, you're not spending your life activity developing your authentic self. You're not, maybe you want to be a poet, artist, or something, but you have to work 12, 14, 16 hours just to survive. Right. All of these things collectively impact us psychologically. And sometimes they also manifest physically. So I would argue that, you know, part of, you know, the advice I would give is to recognize that what you're going through is normal and it's not just an individual thing. It is not something just in your mind. What's happening in your mind, what's happening in your experience is also a function of the society that's out there right now. And we are absolutely an individualistic society. Super, super individualistic. Of course. Even our mental health treatments are very individualistic. Mm -hmm. uh, therapists are not trained, for example, to talk about structural racism and why some of their clients, maybe some of their stress has to do with constantly being, let's say, a black woman. Right. Having to deal with the stress of being a black woman in a racist society. Right. You know, a therapist would just tell her, well, you know, like, you know, Let's do some cognitive behavioral, and we'll just help you rethink the way you're thinking about your your pain. Right. It's like, no, your pain is probably normal. It is it's probably an alarm system. Right. It is a built-in alarm system telling you that something's wrong. So, you know, that's the other thing, too, I would argue, and maybe this is a controversial statement, um, but I would say lean into your authentic emotions. And it, life isn't always this happy-go-lucky kind of thing lean into into that pain because sometimes that pain is again an alarm telling you you know what i'm not crazy um when i was teaching youth with emotional you know quote unquote emotional behavior disorders can't stand that phrase because exactly what you're saying was often the case with my kids 
Many of them were incredibly smart, very healthy, and pissed off. Yes. Pissed yeah. off because of the injustices that they're observing and experiencing in school, in their neighborhood, um, even mm -hmm. at home. And gee, they may have what looks like a maladaptive response, right? <laughs> it's unhealthy the way they're responding. Those students of yours have every legitimate right to be experiencing what they're experiencing. As you said, it is coming from an authentic place. Right. It is not a manifestation of some delusion. Right. Right. But there are some therapists that will probably want to spin it that way. If not, that is a delusion. It might be like you have an anger issue. Right. That you need right. to manage. Right. right. Oh, it's oh, like, oh, no, I am angry at society, I, but maybe what I need to manage is not so much my anger. That's my built in alarm system. What I need to manage is how I respond when I'm angry. You know, system justification theory, which I alluded to earlier, and I kind of yeah. lean a little bit on that theory, again, kind of speaks to, to that issue. The, the idea is that we, we grow up in this society with messages, these ideologies. The society is fair. That's a big one, right? Life is fair. And so if something bad happens, it's because you deserve it. You know, mm -hmm. bad things only happen to bad people. You know, and bad things don't happen to good people. Of course, that's not true. Bad things, well, whatever is bad is defined by who the eye of the beholder, but things happen to everybody, <laughs> whether, whether you're moral or not moral, right. good or bad or, or whatever. Life happens because life is, again, is random. Um, but growing up with those messages, if you're in the dominant group, you know, your, your, your ability to identify with yourself, your what's called ego justification, is in alignment with your group identity, which is in alignment with the societal identity. So in essence, we have ego, group, and system justification all in alignment saying like, yeah, look, I work hard, life is fair, look at me, I'm doing well, uh, I'm a moral person, um, this system is, is, is fair and, and should not be changed. Folks at the bottom don't have that. They have a conflict between ego, which is who am I authentically, my group justification, which is tied often to my my you know cultural group, which could be ethnic, it doesn't have to be, it could be religious as well. But then there's this superordinate system that I completely do not identify with or have been told I can't identify with. Right? What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that you want to be your authentic self, you want to appreciate the group you belong to, but you know that you're devalued in this society. But you also want to believe that life is fair and that society is fair. You're going to you're gonna get into this cognitive right. dissonance. You're going to yeah. engage with this often <laughs> referred to in just world thinking, right? That, you know, life is fair. Uh, and, and therefore, if something bad happens, it's because of moral desert. You, you, you had it coming to you. You messed up somehow. Again, very individualist way of, of looking at, you know, any social process, I would argue, but especially uh, in the issue of structural racism. And I'm glad you said religion, because that probably ties in a pretty big way into many of those, like you said, cultural identity to the groups they belong to, oh, but yes. also morality, the morality aspect of, of that. I wonder how that defines or doesn't define uh, what you're referencing, just religion specifically, as it relates to social psychology um, and 
and, <laughs> and understanding that life isn't fair. Well, that's because God said so, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's because I'm not a good enough believer. Maybe that's it. I need to go to church more often or to the mosque or, yeah. Well, re- religion, well-organized template for dealing with that need for closure issue. It, you always have answers. The answers are always in in the Bible, in the in in the Torah, in the Quran. Uh, n- name your name your holy text. You know, science doesn't operate that way. Science is empirical. It's not dogmatic, right? Um, a good enough believer. Maybe that's it. I need to go to church more often, or to the mosque, or yeah. Well, re- religion provides a a well organized template for dealing with that need for closure issue. It, you always have answers. The answers are always in in the Bible, in the in in the Torah, in the Quran. Uh, n- name your name your holy text. You know, science doesn't operate that way. Science is empirical. It's not dogmatic, right? Um, and um, and so um, kind of like, but going into the in, into your um, kind of like connection to to religion, there, there's, I mean, we are a religious country. There, there is um, there is a clear connection between our version of Christianity and, and the systems that we have in place, right? There's the Protestant ethic that basically says you can have a personal connection with God, right? So now you have the individualism thing going on. Uh, Catholics, right, before the Reformation, is like, no, you, you had to go through intermediaries in order to communicate with it. So mm-hmm. it's a little more collective, right? Right. Uh, uh, Protestantism changed all that. Calvinism said, no, 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 no. You you can have your own communication with God, and if you do right, you will be rewarded with material uh, wealth, right? And so that's been built into our structure. Of course, this is a message that was, you know, uh, being perpetrated perpetrated by, uh, you know, the the wealthy, the powerful, the slave owners. Um. Religion, you know, plays a big role in, in, in the present day. I, I This might sound like an extreme example, but I, I think it also kind of highlights this, this point of the role of religion in, in, in our society. And again, this is a very, very, you know, kind of like third rail <laughs> topic uh, on top of bringing in the, the social racism. Oh, yeah. Because I think they're, they're, they're clearly connected. They're, they're not separate phenomenon. They, they, it, it, given our history, they're clearly connected. Um, when it, um, I'm thinking of, for example, the the 9/11, the terrorist attacks we had, and how this country quickly became very Islamophobic, and um, equated terrorism with this uh, uh, particular group of people, right? And so uh, you started to see like, oh, all Islam is bad, and all you know Muslims are the same. That there's no nuance, right? As if the same thing doesn't happen in Christianity, right? And, and then I look at the, you know, I look at the the one six terrorist attacks, and they were terrorist attacks, right. you know, this this Absolutely. this failed. Oh yes. Just Absolutely. because it was done stupidly does not mean right. that it was not what we all know it was. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know what? When when we saw the horned guy, the yeah. the. Vegan, the, the so-called shaman yeah, guy, which yeah. again has its own little racist element to it, right? Yeah. Uh, talk about cultural appropriation, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this, think about it. this wasn't discussed in the media. What did he and a bunch of of the other dudes do before they were escorted out of the of the Senate chambers? 
they made a prayer. Mm-hmm. They did a collective prayer to Jesus, saying that Jesus gave us the power to do this. They did it for like a good minute or so. Right. It was a, it was a, a fairly lengthy prayer. Right. That, and, and for God. Can you imagine if it was a bunch of Muslim people that did that? First off, they would never have made it inside the Capitol. But let's say they right. did, and that was the imagery you saw. Right, right. You would yes. be hearing about right. it to this day. Like, oh, my God, a bunch of people, yes. re- you know, recited the Quran or whatever and thanked Allah in the Senate chambers and whatnot. Uh, in, in the in, you know in the name of this evil act that they did, yeah, that never happened. What happened was a bunch of Christians did that, right? And no mm-hmm. one's saying anything. Well, that's I, how that's how insidious this this racism is. That because it, it is intertwined with economics, with religion. Um, well, yeah, this has been a great conversation. I I wish we could have more time. Um, I know you have to run off and um, sh- you know. Uh, share your sage wisdom with your uh, students and uh well if you have one last question i'll take one last one because I, I like you i'm like i'm really enjoying this conversation like <laughs> james what yeah. you got what i got is a question uh i don't know man you know i i think i asked this question once in a while uh just to get an idea about the person sure. if you are an inanimate object what would you be Oh my goodness! I, <laughs> I am terrible at these types of questions. If I were an inanimate object, what would I be? Definitely not something that someone would walk on, for sure. I don't think I'd, I'd like to be walked on. Yeah, I, I, I think as a Latino, I get enough of that in, in yeah. real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. That that's an excellent question. Probably. You know, it would probably, I was going to say, I was thinking like a musical instrument. Uh, uh, Earlier in in the interview, I talked about how one of my music teachers was uh, really one of my earliest mentors and really made me see the value of education Mm -hmm. uh, at a a period where I wasn't, you know, I was going through, you know, normal adolescent things, but also, you know, I was put in this, you know, academic situation that was fairly uncomfortable you know but i had this this woman who who through music showed me why i need to focus on math and history (laughs) and science right um and um yeah so i would probably be like my stand-up bass that she actually gave she gave that to to this day well she unofficially gave it to me i'm not sure she was supposed to, but <laughs> that was 25 something years ago. So statue of limitations, uh, give or take. <laughs> so I, I would be that specific stand of face. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, it's it's. I always find it interesting with the role of the artist in your life, uh, in people's lives, and that's just yours, but in people's lives because it, I I would also pick an instrument, uh, a trumpet, for that same reason. I met a, a musician named Olu Dara, and he was doing a show at, in the Goodman Theater in Chicago. And I met him after and just talked to him for a bit. Come to find out, he's the father of one of my favorite rappers, Nas. And oh. I was like, oh, my God, you're, I've heard, I know you so well. He's like, just follow your dream, stay in school. At that point, I didn't know I was going to be one to become an actor. I thought I wanted to do something else. But hearing him talk about that changed my, my trajectory. So it's it's that's so interesting. Yeah, same thing. And, and, and I, think that might, I think that's a beautiful segue, I guess, into my final comment that I would make, which is this is why 
you know, my team and I do the work we do. We know the value of mentorship in those moments in in your life. You know, we we we're born and we die, but there's a bunch of stuff that happens in between that. And to have a mentor that that's truly invested in you, and I think that's the other key too. That we often don't think of mentorship as as something that is like an investment. We we you know, mentorship is often seen as a task that, that educators yes. have to do, right? Transactional, um, yeah. And, and very, exactly, very transactional. And uh, actually, and I note this in, in our last publication, that's why I intentionally do not use the word mentee. Mm-hmm. Uh, mentee has this, you know, it has the the prefix mentor, right? So it's already assuming like this person's gonna be like a mini version of, of the mentor. Uh, it's you know it's often used in this, in this very transactional kind of, of context, um, and um, oftentimes you know because it's viewed as kind of like this employer worker relationship, it, you know these mentees often you know are treated as like worker bees as mm-hmm. opposed to budding intellectuals who will become the next generation of professionals. Um, so. I, I would argue for the terminology protege, which which implies this almost apprenticeship. It, mm-hmm. it implies a, an investment in not just developing the person's technical skills, but also developing the entire individual as well. And, and that's what we are trying to do with this uh, with this framework of critical mentorship versus mm-hmm. the traditional approach. So oh, we should definitely talk about that. <laughs> For our next session, yeah. yeah. Next session, I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hold you all to that. Appreciate that. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on this. We know you got to get to class. Uh, this is Schoolhouse Talk. This is Chris Dykos. James Miles. And it was an honor to talk to Dr. Vargas. Dr. Yeah. Thank, you for Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. And um, if you enjoy what you heard today, please, um, he will be speaking. He'll be the lead keynote. Kicking off the whole conference in June, June 28th, um, Healing Communities Through Trauma-Informed MTSS. <laughs> and, if, you um, if you don't, if you can't see him, but he's doing the, the yeah. congratulatory shaking hands like he just won the yeah. battle. That was a fantastic conversation with, with your boy, Dr. Josie Vargas. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, that really, I gained so much insight on, um, critical race theory, um, understanding the importance of mentorships, um, the, and, and, and the nuance of that mentorship. Yeah, and how it can shape us to be, really shape our ideas and our, our, our philosophy for years to come uh, without even us noticing it. It's like yeah. all the way back in our subconscious, those impacts and influences, uh, and somehow they manifest themselves in different ways. Right. Especially as it relates to critical race theory. You know, like all the pushback against critical race theory is probably not about what's happening in 2021. It's about what people are, are holding deep into their hearts and minds from when they were children. Right. Uh, that's a lot of the pushback. Um, yeah. yeah, that was, it was good. It was great. And, and, yeah. um, you know, if our listeners enjoyed what they heard with Dr. Vargas, um, he'll, he'll be our keynote speaker on the 28th of June. Get your ticket in a no. That's not how you spell now. Get your ticket in O W. <laughs> yeah. Get it. 
Get it, get it, get it. You better get that ticket, man. Uh. <laughs> well, as always, having fun chatting with you. Always, always, yeah. always great. Yeah. Hey, always great to meet up whenever we can, James. Let's let's keep it going. Let's All do right. another one. Well, thanks again, everybody. Uh, we hope you enjoyed Schoolhouse Talk. Talk.